As we come to the scripture, let me ask that we bow to pray. Uh, Father, you have said that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so as we open the scripture now, we trust that it will be just that, this lamp, this light, it will reveal the way to us. So we pray that you would make us understand uh, your precepts, even as we meditate upon your wondrous works. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your scriptures, please, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I want to read verses 25 through 32. 25 through 32. Psalm 119, verse 25, please. Hear the word of God. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, let me not be put to shame. I'll run the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. You get the sense of that passage. The sense of it. Um, he begins by saying, my soul clings to the dust. Verse 28 says, my soul melts away for sorrow. Then this particular stanza of Psalm 119, you, you get the sense now that the, the psalmist is, is laying his soul bare and saying, this is how I have felt in my life. And I say stanza because it is just that. Remember, this is one of those acrostic psalms, 22 stanzas, 22 sections of the psalm, each section beginning with a particular uh, letter of the Hebrew alphabet in in sequence. So each line of each section will begin with that particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's very well thought out, very well done, if you will, in that poetic, in that literary sense. But here it comes to lay this out because you see this, the whole sense of this this whole Psalm 119 is a, a celebration really of the word of God. He's saying there's a way of, of blessedness. There's a way of real happiness. There's a way of real satisfaction. There's a way of real contentment in life. But it's only lived and understood in relationship with the scripture, in relationship with the word of God. And so we begin, you might remember in verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. He says there's a way of, of life that really leads to happiness, that really leads not simply to a momentary happiness, to but an enduring kind of contentment, enduring joy, this way really of, of peace. And he says there's only the way of following after God. Because by way of, of this word of God, we, we find how it is that we're reconciled to God by another standing on our behalf, an undefiled one standing on our behalf, a blameless one standing on our behalf so that God can accept us, his life for ours. In the old covenant, it was animals. In, in the new covenant, obviously, it's in the person of our Lord Jesus. And he's saying, now, walk blamelessly before me in relationship to me because of what I have done for you. I have taken your sin and its penalty now. No. Walk blamelessly before me. And you'll know a deep contentment. You'll know my peace. 
as in may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The very blessing of God upon you leads to this enduring kind of happiness. And so throughout this psalm, we'll find the, the psalmist praying that God would help him to, to keep his precepts, to know his precepts. And so in the second stanza, we consider this young man and how can this work in a young man's life? Can it really supply purity? Can it really supply this blessedness to the life of a young man? And he gave of his experience, no doubt, and how it is that God had kept him. And, and then well, the stanza we skipped, verses 17 through 24, uh, skipped not for any other reasons other than just uh, picking up a new line of thought, if you will. But he prays that God would deal bountifully with him so that he would, he would be able to live and to keep his, his word. But now we come to a situation with this kind of question. Can God's word sustain? Can God's word bless? Even in the midst of great discouragement. Even in the great, midst of great disappointment. That's his, his real question his real question. You'll, you'll notice how this flows. He, he begins with his soul clinging in the dust. Verse 28, with his soul melting away for sorrow. But then you'll notice, even though he seems hopeless there, at the end of this stanza, there seems to be great hope because he's saying, even in the midst of that, I'm going to choose the way of faithfulness. I'm going to cling to your testimonies. I'm going to run the way of your commandments. I'm going to, I'm going to follow after you, God, even though the situation in my life causes me to describe it as one who is clinging to the dust, whose soul is wasting away for sorrow. Have you thought what it's like to cling to dust? There isn't anything to hold on to. I remember early in my life of painting walls for my wife. I read the back of a paint can. That's what I do. I mostly read rather than work. But, 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 but I read the back of the paint can and he said, said, clean the surface first. Of course, I didn't, and then I learned why. Because paint doesn't stick to dust. Nothing does. That's the very point of it. He says, my soul clings like to dust. There's, there's nothing to hold on to. Think about what that, would, what that would really mean. The New International Version puts it, I'm laid low in the dust. You get the sense of being in dust to the, such a degree that the dust has filled your eyes so you can't see, filled your ears so you can't hear, filled your nostrils so you can't breathe, filled your throat so you can't cry out. There's a sense of utter hopelessness. I'm laid low in the dust. I'm that low. I'm simply one who is, should be swept away, if you will. There's no notice of me. Here I lie in the dust. I keep company with dust. Nobody wants to hang out with dust. And so, so here I, I, I am. And of course, dust being a euphemism, really, an idiom, we might say, for death. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Here I am, laid low in dust. I'm near death. At least that's the way it feels to me. And, and people are treating me if, as if I am or should be just sort of dead. That's the way I feel at this moment in time. And so our question is, how does he get from there to have chosen the way of faithfulness? I cling to your testimonies. I'll run in this particular way, of your commandments. 
Now, we don't, we don't know exactly what put the psalmist in this particular situation. It could be his, his sin. In, in verse 67 of Psalm 119, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. And so he's saying, before I, I came into great difficulty, I had gone astray. And, and so perhaps his, his difficulty, his, his clinging, if you will, to the dust, is the result of his own sin, his, a result of his own going astray. And, and certainly, if this is David, any man, really, any person, but if it's this is David, we can, we can get a sense of that, of that feeling that he might have had when he, when he went astray because of how he puts it in Psalm 32. He says, for when I kept silent, that is about his own sin with Bathsheba, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of, of the summer. He says, he said, that's how I felt during that time. I felt like my bones were wasting away. Uh, laid low in the dust, that kind of language. Perhaps it was because of his own sin. He, he had this heavy burden upon him because of his sin. Uh, it could have been, too, just in the sense of persecution. You'll notice in verses uh, uh, 22 and 23, just above where I read, he says, Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I've kept your testimonies, even though princes sit plotting against me. And so, and so you get this sense that the, the, the royalty was against him. And, and when the princes are against you, everybody's against you. Uh, and so he said, even, even those in high places are against me. You can only imagine what that would feel like if you felt like you were under their um, persecution, under their thumb. Verse 51, he says, the insolent or the arrogant or the disrespectful utterly deride me. Uh, but I do not turn from your, from your law. In verse 85, he puts it like this, the insolent, insolent or the arrogant have dug pitfalls for me. In other words, as he looks around, he realizes there are people out to get him so much so that they're setting traps for him so that he would get caught in them so that, so that he would be uh, disgraced. The insolent have dug holes for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. So there are people lying about me. The people telling lies about me, destroying my life, destroying my reputation. You can only imagine, perhaps you know, how that feels when people do that to you. You feel like you're completely dust. He says, they've almost made an end of me on earth. In other words, they've been very, very successful in all of this. So you can only imagine in this psalmist's life, whether it's because of his sin, whether it's because of persecution from the outside, enemies coming against him, uh, who are slandering him and, 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 and trying to trap him so that he could be, be disgraced. Um, there he is. And he says, this is how I'm feeling. My, my soul is laid uh, low in the dust. Now, what's it tell us? Well, it tells us at least this. That even for people who know God, and even for people who desire to know him, there can be moments of deep disappointment. There can be moments of deep discouragement. And I say moments, and sometimes those moments can be days or weeks or months or years. They can affect us. And here's a man who knew that kind of disappointment, that kind of disappointment that leads to this kind of hopelessness to say, I have nothing to hold on to. I'm like dust. My soul is weary because I have been filled with such sorrow. I simply don't know that I can 
can really go on. So, so he takes it to the extreme. Some of us know a bit, bits and pieces of, of those extremes in the context of our own lives. It, it could be by way of, uh, of events, death of one we love can bring us to this point, I suppose. Debilitating illness of one we love or ourselves can bring us to this, this point of, of despair, if you will, of, of such deep uh, disappointment. Various situations can do that as well, various uh, kinds of failures. It may be that we failed in school. It may be that we failed in business. It may be we failed in a relationship. And, and thus we look at our lives and we wonder, how can I really go on in the midst of, of these kinds of things and, and these kinds of failures? Uh, it may be because of fear, uh, fearing because of the future. We live in uncertain times. And we begin to wonder, what's really going to happen with the economy? What's really going to happen in political situations? What's really going to happen with this oil spill and everything else that seems to be happening in the face of the earth? What's really going to happen to the kind of life that we know? And people can come to discouragement and despair and say, is there anything really in the midst of all of that to, 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 to hold on to? Could be all of this. By way of sin, we look at the discouragement, the disappointment that comes when, when, when there's sin in, 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 in the lives of public Christians. And we look at their lives and it discourages us, it disappoints us. We wonder how can any of this really be true when in their lives we see what has really taken place. Maybe it's in the sin of others against us. As with the psalmist, there are those who are coming against him, who are slandering him, who are being malicious, who are, who are creating pitfalls for him. Maybe you know that. Maybe others have sinned against you in such a way that it, it, it just discourages you. How can God let this happen? How can this really be happening? And maybe, as perhaps for the psalmist himself, your own sin, the temptations that come and the weariness that come from fighting it, the weariness that comes from giving in to it, the, the guilt that you feel because I've sinned again. And the, the besetting kinds of sins that seem to plague your life and mine and can bring discouragement to us. Oh, that I were free of this. Oh, that I had thought I had matured past this. I didn't realize that this was going to come to me, that this was going to truly get me. And then we say, how can this psalmist go from that to this sense of being faithful to God and, and running with God and having great confidence, great confidence in God. Well, it's because of something he knew. So let's unpack this for a moment. He comes to speak to his own soul. We read about that in, 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 in one of our readings this morning from Psalm 42. It's a, a great passage of, of the psalmist speaking, if you will, to his own soul. It begins as we began in our reading this morning. Uh, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living, uh, for the living God. And, and, and the reason he's feeling this thirst is because for whatever reason, he can't find God. So he's thirsty for me. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? Well, he's been trying to appear before God, but he has this sense that God hasn't really been listening, been hearing. Now that's his sense. It isn't the truth, but that's his sense. I trust you know that sense. Is God really listening? <laughs> What's really going on here? And so, verse 3 says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? See, that's the height, or the depths, it left you, perhaps, of discouragement, isn't it? When something speaks to you, your own tears, because you're sorrowful, because your soul is clinging to the dust in some sense. And all of that speaks to you and says, no, where's God? If God were with you, why would you be feeling like this? 
So where is God? Then verse 4 in Psalm 42, he says, These things I remember. He begins to contemplate then about God. And so after he does that, verse 5, and what he thinks about is the worship of God. Verse 5, he says, so then he speaks to his soul. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He thinks about God. And so he, as old preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he takes his soul by the hand and he sits his soul down and he says to his soul, hope in God. What are you doing? Remember God. He's your God and your salvation. You'll praise him again. Rest. Rest. He goes on and he says, but, but, but my soul is, is, is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you. Okay, I'm going to remember you. Oh, yes, I've got these troubles. Deep calls the deep and the roar of the waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. In other words, I feel like the whole ocean has just swept me by. And then he prays. And then he says to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Verse 9. Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? So not only my tears, but now my adversaries are coming to me, all these things against me. And it could be people adversaries, it could be, it could be circumstances adversaries coming against you, but all these are shouting to you, where is your God? And then again, as Lloyd-Jones would say, The psalmist took his soul by the hand and sat his soul down and spoke to his soul and said, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil with me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43, which at one time was this combined with Psalm 42. Why they split them, I don't know. But again, the same. God, why have you rejected me? Verse 5, he speaks to his soul. Hope in God. So that's the sense in which we get from the psalmist in Psalm 119. That is what's going on here. He's speaking to his soul about God. And he's speaking to God about his own soul. He lays it out before him. Notice verse 26. He says, when I told of my ways, you answered me. In other words, when I told of my ways to you, God. When I spoke them to you, you were the one who answered. And, and so that's the context here. That's the sense here. He's praying. He's, he's laying out his, his ways to God. And so he, he just lays it out before God. So this is, this is it, God. As if God doesn't know. God knows, but he, he lays it all out. He doesn't shy away from God. And we mustn't ever lose the sense of blessedness that is ours because we can pray. This isn't something to take lightly. In the days of Moses, he was speaking to the people, Deuteronomy chapter 4. He was speaking to the people about the wonder of God. And he says this, verse 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? In other words, who else? has the very God of the universe this close so that when we call upon him, he hears. We mustn't ever miss that. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm chapter 50, in verse 15, says it like this. He says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. He says, he says, call upon me. The psalmist, as, I'm sorry, the apostle 
Paul in Philippians in chapter 4 says to us uh, this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is in hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We mustn't ever forget the fact that when we pray, we're praying to the one who is omniscient, who knows everything about everything, knows everything about our situation, knows everything about us, knows everything about his plan, knows everything about what is best, for he is all-wise. He's omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful, which means not only does he know everything and he knows the best way, But he's powerful enough that nothing can keep him from bringing about that which is ultimately best. And not only that, we know he's the one who is filled with mercy and grace towards us. Loving kindness, the scripture says, his commitment to us to always treat his people with grace and love. And thus, not only does he know the best way, not only is he able to bring it about, but he's the very one who desires to bring about for his glory and us because he loves us. And so we pray, that's the one to whom we pray. You're not asking me to do this. I'm not asking you to do this. We're not asking the president to do this. We're not asking our boss to do this. We're laying all of this out to God, and he's the one who's seeing through it, and he's the one who's walking through it with us, and he's the one who's sovereign over all these things. And so it's God. Isn't it amazing? I was in here this morning at about 5, this morning praying. And it struck me again, as often on these Sunday mornings when I'm in here praying, that God is listening. If I called you at five in the morning, you probably wouldn't answer. Right? You look at the caller ID, no. But here I was at five in the morning. I had an audience with God. I mustn't ever... Stop shivering when we think that and when we know that. And so the psalmist, what he does is he lays out everything, all of his dust clinging, and all of his weariness, and all the events and everything before God. Jonathan Edwards, a theologian of previous centuries, read this verse, and Edwards was a very... How do we put this? Um, Nerdy type, as that's how my wife would put it. And and so what he did is he would read scripture and he would make resolutions about them. And here was his resolution after reading Psalm 119.26. He said, resolve to exercise myself in all this my life long with the greatest openness to declare my ways to God and lay open my soul to him. He says, well, this is what that passage must mean. This is how I take that. When I told my ways to you, you answered me. So I'm going to resolve in all of my life with greatest openness to declare my ways to God to lay open my soul to him always. See, that's relationship, isn't it? That's laying ourselves out before God. It isn't that God doesn't know this, but he calls us, invites us, commands us to lay this out before him. 
in relationship with him. And here's how he understood that, Edwards. He said, I'm going to lay out all my sins, temptations, difficulties, sorrows, fears, hopes, desires, and everything and every circumstance, according to Psalm 119, verse 26. You get the sense that when Edwards was praying, he would say, God, I'm telling you this because you said to. I'm telling you this because this is my life and I'm laying this out before you. And so, so here we, and so here we have it. And perhaps Edward's insight can help us to see some of what perhaps the, psalm, the psalmist laid out in this circumstance to, to lay out as Edward's promised to do and resolved to do in his own life, his own sins. And so even as the, the psalmist lays out in the midst of this horrible situation to lay out his own sins, he still isn't sinless in this or anything else. And so as he comes into the presence of God, he lays out his sins. He's been rebellious against God. He lays out, no doubt, these temptations that come before him. Don't you know that we're in, when we're in difficult straits, our temptations are very strong. Temptations to slander another. Temptations to be bitter. Temptations to not forgive. Temptations for self-pity. To think through, oh, why is this happening to me kind of thing. All of those temptations come before us. We need to lay those out and say, God, this is tempting me and this is tempting me. And I've actually sinned here and I've sinned here because I've succumbed to those temptations. Temptations to doubt the goodness of God. Temptations to doubt his presence. Temptations to doubt that you belong to him through Christ. Temptation to think that for whatever reason God has in fact gone back on his promise and abandoned you. All those temptations. You get the sense that the psalmist is laying all of those out. Laying out all of the the difficulties, the sorrows, all of his fears in the midst of these great traumas in our lives. There's tremendous fear. What's really going to come of me? What's really going to happen? What does the future really hold? How will I live? I get this sense that the psalmist is laying all of that out very honestly, very, very open. All of his hopes. God, this is what I had hoped for my life. This is how I understood your promises. This is where I was headed. This is, this is what I expected. But God, all of those are now dashed to lay those all out. All Desires. God, this is what I had desired. And as we lay those hopes and desires out and we compare them uh, against the word of God and we, we lay them out in the very presence of God, we, we begin to see them with, with new eyes and better. And as Edward says, in his puritanical way, he says, everything in every circumstance, I'm going to lay out everything, every situation, whatever it is I've missed here, I'm still laying out. You get the sense that the psalmist lays all that out. And what's amazing here is that God does, in fact, answer him. He says, when I told of my ways, you answered me. Now, now we don't know the answer that was given. Exactly. He doesn't say, well, this is how God answered me. We don't get a sense of any change in circumstance. We don't get a sense of, of any of that. He, he just simply says uh, that God answered me. But, but what we do find in this stanza of this psalm is a pouring out of this man's heart, a desire for God to teach him his statutes, to teach him his ways. Now, isn't that interesting? He says, God answered me, but, but God, what I really desire is I really desire to know your precepts, to know your ways. Why do you think that's here? Why do you think that's prominent in the midst of this situation as he's praying and says that God answered me? Could it not be this? That there's no way to hear God. There's no way to understand anything of God unless we understand his scripture, unless we understand his word. We speak to God in prayer when the disciples of Jesus came to Jesus and said, teach us to pray. He taught them what to say. 
But then when we come to the scripture, that's when we hear. That's when we listen. That's when we understand God and his, his ways. There's no understanding God apart from understanding his word. It would all be confusion. That's why we pray before we read the scripture every Sunday. This prayer of illumination. It's, it's a prayer that says, God, bring light to your word in such a way that I'll be able not only to understand it, but see it and, and believe it. If I could quote Edwards again, uh, once again, this comes from a sermon um, that he preached entitled, A Divine and Supernatural Light Immediately Imparted to the Soul by the Spirit of God Shown to be Both a Scriptural and Rational Doctrine. That isn't the quote, that's just the title of the sermon. You can see why I don't title my sermons. I'm quite intimidated by the likes of Edwards. I just sort of leave it blank. He says this about this spiritual light, these prayers of illumination. God, help me to know your word. He says this spiritual light that we're praying for is not the suggesting of any new truths or propositions nor cont- not contained in the word of God. This suggesting of new truths or doctrines to the mind, independent of any antecedent revelation of those propositions, either in word or writing, is inspiration, such as the prophets and apostles had, and such as some enthusiasts pretend to. Now what he's saying there is, what we're praying for is not a new revelation. That's what the apostles and prophets had. And he said, and some new enthusiasts, which basically puts a lot of television preachers out of business. But... Um, of those who claim they have this new revelation. He says, that's not what we're praying for. We're not, we're not praying for a new revelation. When we got that, we, needed to add, we would need to add it to the end of the Bible. And that simply isn't going to happen. But he says, this is, but this spiritual light that I'm speaking of is, is quite different from inspiration. That is the God-breathedness of scripture. It reveals no new doctrine, suggests no new proposition to the mind. It teaches no new thing of God or Christ or another world not taught in the Bible, but only gives a due apprehension of those things that are taught in the word of God. So what he's praying for, he's not praying for a new revelation, he's praying, God, let me get it, let me understand that which you've revealed to us. Let me understand it. That's what we're praying for as we read the Bible. Not new revelation. This isn't some strange word. This, is, this isn't something that we'll, we'll add to, contradict that which is here. But God, let me gain wisdom from your word. Let me really understand it. Let me apprehend it, even as it apprehends me. And if I might go on and preach Edward's sermon, he goes on like this now that he said what it isn't to say what it is. And he says that, What this spiritual divine light is, and it may be thus described, a true sense of the divine excellency of the things revealed in the word of God and a conviction of the truth and reality of them arising. This spiritual light primarily consists in the former of these, that is, a real sense and apprehension of the divine excellency of the things revealed in the word of God. That is to say, what we're getting here is this deep sense apprehension that this is God that when we're reading the scripture that this is from God this isn't from another person it's from God and so it is majestic it is excellent it is something that we should indeed put into practice this isn't just good advice this isn't just something from the wisdom of, a, of an old man this is from God 
And he says, so what we're praying for is that our souls would be so knit to this word in a sense, that we would so see it, that we would say, yes, this isn't like anything else. And even when we read that, which we may read elsewhere, like love one another, when we read it in the scripture, it's different than when it comes from the Wall Street Journal. Where we get this sense, this is God, his way. And I can sink my whole life into it. He says, a spiritual and saving conviction of the truth and reality of these things arises from such a sight of their divine excellencies and glory. He says, that's what really grabs us then. We, we see, yes, this is really from God, this word. I can trust in this word and thus trust in, in God. He says, so that this conviction of their truth is an effect and natural consequence of this sight of their divine glory. There is therefore in this spiritual light a true sense of the divine and superlative excellency of the things of God now it gets complicated after that but that's the point you see we're praying he's praying God here I've laid out my life now if I'm going to hear from you if if you're going to answer me I must know your word There's no substitute there at all. And so that comes to me, that comes to us to saying, all right, if I'm really going to hear from God well, I must get to know him. How would God speak? What would he say in this circumstance, that circumstance? How would I apply this word? You see, there are times when some people have come to me and said, you know, Karen has said, and then they'll tell me what they said Karen has said, and I'll go, no, she would never say that. I just know her. She wouldn't put it like that. She'd never say that. Sorry, you misunderstood and there are times when people come to me and say, God has said, and I say, no, 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 God wouldn't say that. <laughs> he wouldn't say that. You see, how do, how do we know that? We only know that by knowing him. We only know that by, by, by gaining wisdom from him. We only know that by, by, by spending time with him in his word, listening to him and praying, God, here I am. I'm just me. So this is you speaking. Please help me not only understand it, but, but, but get it and apprehend it. To see that this is really, really from you. So then I can sink all of myself in it. Knowing, yes, it is indeed from you. That's what he's praying in the midst of this prayer of illumination. And then he comes, we see, and he prays. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. See, he's so desperate at this point. He's so desperate. It isn't just, please sort of help me. Make me. He says, I have no other hope. Unless you make me understand who you are, what life really is, unless you help me with all of that, I'm just going to be living, clinging to dust. So I have no other hope, no other help other than you, God. So make me, please. Understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. He says, I'm just not going to sit here idly by. I'm going to take all of these things that you've done, and I'm going to ponder them and think about them and, and grab a hold of them and chew them up and swallow and chew them up and swallow and chew them up and swallow. That's what I'm going to do in this thing of meditation. Now, please understand that, that, that this stanza could have taken 10 years of this man's life. He could still be living it even as he writes it. This, this way of going from hopelessness to hope isn't necessarily this nice little linear 10% a day increase. This, 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 could, this could be uh, uh, two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, 12 steps back. It's, it, it's a moving up. It's a growing in maturity. 
but it isn't just this nice little linear line that just sort of goes up. So he's meditating. He's grabbing hold. One day he gets it. One day he wonders. One day he gets it better. One day he wonders less. But there he is in the midst of all of this. And so he says, verse 29, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your laws. So he comes. He says, I've chosen the way of faithfulness. Okay, God, I get it. You've you've answered my prayer. You've answered my prayer. I've, I've seen the excellencies of your word. I know that whatever you say is true, though I still am in great sorrow and difficulty. I resolve to go the way of faithfulness. I get it. All right. I cling to your testimonies. I was clinging to the dust. Didn't help me. Now I'm clinging to your testimonies. And because you've answered my prayer, I can see that it's really of you. So now I have something substantial to hold on to. All of your witness, your testimony, all of your testimony about life, all of your testimony about yourself, all of your testimony about what you're doing in the lives of your people. Okay, I'll hang on to that. That's something to grab a hold of. I'll cling to that instead of the dust. And I'll run the way of the commandments. But here's the key. Here's, Here's everything. It's the last line. And it can be translated in one of two ways. My version has, this version has, when you enlarge my heart, other versions have, for you have enlarged my heart. And it can go either way. Sorry for those of you who want to be technical about grammar, but it can really be translated both ways. But the sense of it is, my only hope in any of this is because I know that you're at work in my heart. I know that you're at work in me. I know that you're at work in my mind. I know that you're at work in my affections. I know that you're in work in my guts. I know that you're at work in me. And what you're doing is enlarging my heart. Another translation of that is that you're setting my heart free from whatever boundaries it has been, uh, that has been keeping it from really seeing you, from really hearing you, from really trusting you, from really walking with you. My only hope, my real hope, and I know this to be true because you're my God, is that you're working in me to increase my capacities, to increase my heart, to expand it. And that he says, all right. I'll meditate upon your commandments because I know as, you, as I do, you're expanding my heart. I'll think through all that you have taught me because I know that when I do, you're expanding my heart. This comes from your commandments, comes from your word. You see, All of this word increases our capacity really to understand difficulties that we may be going through because we see, if you will, their purpose. Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews uh, speaks to us of, of Jesus. We read some of this in one of our readings this morning. He says, verse 7, chapter 12, For it, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. In other words, why are you going through this? Why are you enduring this hardship? He says it's for discipline, it's for training. In a sense, it's for your good. He said, for what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Should we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so the psalmist clinging to the dust says, God, what's going on here? 
And the answer from scripture is endure. But why should I have to endure this? Oh, because I'm your father and I love you and I'm training you. And we say, but, but, but does it need to be this drastic? And he responds by saying, I think I'm your father who is sovereign. Trust me. And he says, now, what I want you to do is to realize the end of this. And this is the guaranteed end. Holiness. And no one can see me without holiness. So the end of this is that you'll see me and see me better than you ever did before. Therefore, he says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. Run the way of my commandments so that what is lame may not be put out of the joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone. Hmm. Even your accusers, by the way. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it be defiled and so forth and so on. So he says here, run with me, even in the midst of this. And you know that when we meditate upon that, and this isn't a guaranteed one verse in, tomorrow you'll be fine kind of thing. This is a meditation. This is a lifelong pursuit grabbing hold of in various circumstances and situations. What happens over time is that he enlarges our hearts, increases our capacity because he's at work in us. Indeed, he would say uh, to the people through the Apostle James, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let that steadfastness have its full effect that none of you, that, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And he says, listen, this is the end of it, so, so count it joy when you're clinging to the dust. And he says, meditate upon that, on the end result of that. And over time, you see, your heart will be expanded to embrace. He writes through the apostle Peter to a group of people who are suffering greatly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercies, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, listen, think about God, what he's done. Now this, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary... You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you haven't seen him, you love him, though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And the reason, you see, we pray that God would make us understand his precepts is that is not intuitive to us, to know that and to believe that. And if someone casually would come and just simply say that to you, some other person, you'd go, but how do you know that? Can I, I can't sink my teeth into that if it's just you and your ideas and what you think of you. So don't worry, everything's going to work out well or in the end it'll be better. How do you know that? And so we pray, God, show me that this is you. That this is your divine excellency, as Edwards would put it. That this is really you, God. This isn't just some preacher. This isn't just some friend. This is you. 
I'll cling to that. Increase my heart. Set me free. Set me free from the boundaries of sin. The kids this week, one of their memory verses, have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, as we, as we meditate on the word of God, he frees us from the constraint that sin brings. Sin brings great constraint to us because sin constrains our hearts in such a way that it causes us to only see a limited sight, which is mostly us. That's what we see. We see ourselves. That's what sin does. It causes us to focus inward. It causes us to say, what about me? It causes us to only see what's happening in the context of our circumstance, our situation, and can't see beyond that. That's what sin does. And when the word of God comes, it breaks the power of sin, if you will, in our lives. So we can see that which God is doing and embrace that so that then we can have this heart that says, yes, what I want to be is holy. If If this has to happen so that I can become more holy, And see God, so be it. So you see, the word of God breaks this power of sin in us because indeed it is God who is at work in us. Paul would write in Philippians, in chapter 2, this, therefore, verse 12, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. If the psalmist were writing this, I think he'd put it like this. For it is God who enlarges your heart. It's God who's at work in you, increasing your capacity to know him and to embrace all of life. And to live contentedly in him. He's at work in you. To do what? To increase your capacity, to enlarge your heart that you might know him. The apostle gives evidence of that, testimony to that in Philippians in chapter 4. He says, not that I'm speaking, verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things, and if the psalmist were writing this, I think he would write, I can do all things through him who enlarges my heart, who strengthens me, you see. And that was the hope of the psalmist. He knew at the moment he clung to nothing, but he knew that to which he could cling was the witness of God. And so he prayed, God, let me see that as from you. Let me know that as from you. And God answered him. And so he said, I will cling to your word and I'll run this way. And at the end of the day, he knew why all that took place, why he was able to do that. It was because God had enlarged his heart. And so he comes to us and says, when you're clinging to the dust, pray that God will enable you to see his word, meditate upon it. And in the midst of that, he'll increase your capacity. He'll increase your heart. And you'll cling to that. As if we only run the way of his commandments will get weary. If we sit and wait for God to increase our hearts, then we'll become lazy. But, but if we do both, we trust and run. If we cling and run, then he'll make us blessed. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us, that you would, in fact, make your word 
life to us. That you would in fact enable us to know that it is in fact from you. And that we can cling to it and it will not let us loose. So Father, I pray that you would do that in us. That we might then not only cling to your witness, to your testimonies, but run the way of your commandments. All the while knowing that we do this only because you have enlarged our hearts. Father, we thank you for how you've worked in us this week with VBS. We pray that you've enlarged the hearts of lots of kids and also lots of adults and also youth group kids that worked. I pray that they would all know you better from that. Thank you for bringing back our leaders in Romania and kids that went to Romania. Father, I, I pray for them that their hearts have been enlarged as well, that you've worked in them in various kinds of ways that they know they can cling to your testimonies and that you would never, ever let them let them down. I pray for the kids to whom our students ministered that, that those kids would know you better and their hearts would be enlarged as well. Father, we pray for healing Howard Pollock as he recovers from his hip surgery. We pray for him. Father, we pray for those who minister this summer in various places from our church on various summer mission trips and we pray that you would grant them grace for students from Navigators and Campus Crusade and from our church and for their leaders, we pray that you would increase their hearts, enlarge them this summer by way of your word that they would come back more faithful knowing that you are trustworthy, that your word is true. And this, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.